Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. We are up to Genesis chapter 24 now. Genesis 24, another chapter. Uh, We looked at last week um, the burial of Sarah. And one of the things that we didn't quite have time for is I wanted to show you that the place where Sarah was buried is actually a place you can go visit. It's been known and been handed down over the centuries, uh, the actual location. It doesn't look like you would expect, though, because back in the time of Jesus, Herod built a, a monumental structure around it, around this this area. And you can kind of see this old picture. This one's kind of from the 1800s, or early 1900s, perhaps, on, on this one. But it's the oldest still-standing Herodian structure. We're talking a 2,000-year-old building. And it's also the oldest continuously used intact prayer structure in the world. And it's also the oldest major building in the world that still fulfills its original function. You're probably thinking, well, if I can still visit, why are you showing me a picture of 150 years ago? So here's what it looks like today from the outside if you were to go visit it. It's actually the second most revered place in Judaism, first being the Temple Mount. So this is second only to the Temple Mount as far as location. It's... It's rather hostile to go visit sometimes, though. So not a whole lot of trips will take you to there because there have been some massacres that have happened on the steps leading up to the building. But, uh, yeah, so the tomb, history. This isn't myth that we're looking at. This is actual history that we're looking at as we're looking through the book of Genesis. So the book of Genesis today, Genesis chapter 24, is where we're going to pick up. Genesis chapter 24, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 today. And that sounds like a lot of material. It actually is quite a bit of material. But as we're going through it, I think you'll find it'll move pretty fast. Somebody mind reading verse 1, Genesis chapter 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. So Abraham's getting old. This passage that we're about to read, that we're embarking on here, Genesis chapter 24, is the longest chapter in the entire book of Genesis. And it's primarily devoted over to marriage. It's interesting that the longest chapter in Genesis is devoted to marriage, not creation, not the covenant established between God and Abraham, between a man and a woman getting married. It's kind of interesting that that much material is devoted to that being the topic. Abraham being old, well advanced in age, the way that those words rattle off as the author penned them was to give you an indication that this is near the end of his life, right? I mean, not much else is going to be happening with Abraham. We're seeing that he's kind of putting his affairs in order. After he laid Sarah to rest, he's putting his affairs in order. In this chapter, he's trying to secure a wife for his son, Isaac. And then after that, we're going to see a very small glimpse in chapter 25 about his second marriage or his marriage to another woman. And then he's going to pass away. So it's kind of nearing the end of his life. If you're wondering how old he is, though, he's not as close to the end of his life as you might think. He's going to die at 175 years old. This story takes place probably when he's about 140. 
could be as early as 137 or as late as 140 years old, um, probably closer to the 140 years old. So it looks like he's got a good 35 years to go. But at this stage in his life, 35 years, he's feeling pretty weak. He is going to ask his servant to make a trip for him that he's not physically capable of making on his own. When it says there, the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things, I want you to read that language and consider for a second the language that you would see over in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. So turn to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. What does it say there? And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. When it says there in verse 2, I will bless you, who is speaking? God, the Lord. Good, exactly. It's the same Lord that's mentioned here. Over in chapter 12, verse 2, in relation to a time phrase, if you will, to the blessing, it's future, right? I will bless you. You get over here to where we're at, 24, verse 1, the Lord had blessed. The Lord had accomplished what he promised to accomplish. In Abraham's life, back when he was Abram, and that promise was given to him by God, I will bless you. Now we see 13 chapters later, the Lord had blessed him. And we've seen that in a lot of different ways. One of them is in his old age. I mean, old age was an indication that God had was having favor on you or that God was showing favor towards you. So his longevity is a blessing. His material prosperity, we've seen that. That's a blessing. Victory over the eastern kings. You remember that uh, when he went to rescue Lot and he was given victory. That was, that was pretty amazing. God intervened there and, and provided uh, protection and victory for him. That was a blessing. We also saw the restoration of Sarah's womb. She wasn't able to have children for the longest time, and then all of a sudden God, bam, shows up, and she's able to have a son, Isaac, and that was a blessing. We also saw the birth of Isaac. We saw him growing, and we saw Isaac even preserved in that situation, that big test, the Akedah, when God commanded and determined that Abraham was to go sacrifice his son and then stopped him at the very last moment. So God has blessed him. We've seen that all through. We saw God's supernatural intervention when Abraham, in a lack of faith, you know, gave Sarah instructions, hey, when we go down to see Pharaoh, you know, this is what I want you to do. And then again, the same thing when they went in front of Abimelech and God was able to intervene in those situations and tell each of those men, hey, don't touch her, leave her alone. This is my guy, this is my gal, you know, and you leave him alone. And so God has blessed them all through those chapters that we've been looking at. How about verse 2? Somebody mind reading verse 2. One day Abraham said to the man in charge of his household, who was his oldest servant. Oh, okay. Stop. And that's where your stops. Interesting. Your stops right there. Okay. Anybody else have a few more words after that stop in the same verse? Verse 2. Mine says, please place your hand under my thigh. Hmm, That's interesting. But that additional (laughs) phrase is, Jennifer's eyebrows go, what? Something something awkward left out there. Um, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. Here's what I'm going to say about it. Please put your hand under my thigh. I want you to imagine first where that would be located. Okay, now that you've got that image in your mind, I'm going to try to erase. <laughs> when I go to buy a car, I've never bought a new car. When I go to buy a used car or something of big value or something of importance, right, it usually ends with a handshake, right? I shake hands with the person with whom I just made this deal on something that's important, all right? And a handshake is sufficient. But in this day and age, if something was to go south in that transaction, and I was to appeal, hey, we shook on that, the guy's going to go, what are you talking about? You're a freak. What is a handshake? It means nothing. In my father's generation, a handshake meant something. It had meaning to it, which it's kind of lost nowadays. Back then, putting your hand under your thigh meant something. Nowadays, we look at that and go, that's just weird. It's probably even criminal. (laughs) 
All right. But back then, that was like a more solemn step to the handshake. All right. Handshake was not sufficient for the deal that Abraham is calling upon his oldest servant to participate in here. All right. So it's calling upon somebody to engage in a very solemn, symbolic gesture as if to say, this is really super important to me. And by doing this, you're agreeing that you're going to take what's important to me and carry it on as if it's important to you too, that you're going to carry it out. All right. So he gets his servant. What's the name of the servant, by the way? Does it say? It doesn't say. It's an unnamed servant. There was a servant that was mentioned in chapter 15, verse 2. That was Eliezer. Some people suspect that maybe this is Eliezer. Maybe not. We don't know. We do have an indication here that this is an old servant, right? Just as Abraham was described as old, this person almost sounds like an age anyway. Sounds like almost a peer. Whereas an Eliezer was mentioned as somebody that was born in Abram's own house or within his own clan. So it almost sounds like maybe Eliezer was a little bit young to fit into this criteria of being somewhat similar in age, at least description-wise, with Abraham. So it could have been Eliezer. It could have been somebody else. Servant was mentioned in other places. We had a young servant that Abraham went to. When the three visitors came along and Abraham took a a calf and took it to a young servant to to have it slaughtered and prepared into a a meal. But that's not going to be this person because that was a young servant at that time. And then we also had a a servant mentioned in another place, Mount Moriah. When Abraham took his son, you remember he also took two servants and they were described as young servants there. So it's probably not them either. So for all intents and purposes, we don't know. We don't know who the servant is. It's somebody that is definitely well-esteemed inside the household. In fact, it's probably the most esteemed servant that Abraham has. This is the most solemn thing he's going to ask of any servant that we have recorded. And he picks the most seasoned, most trustworthy person. And in fact, it says of that servant, if you saw that language there, who ruled over all that he had. So this servant has not not only charge over Abraham's wealth, he has charge over Abraham's family affairs, as we're going to see here in just a moment. How about verse 3? Somebody mind reading verse 3. And I will have you swear by the Lord, the God of heavens and earth, that you will not get my son a wife from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. And Mike, do you know what version that is by any chance? Or was that one you just picked up off the table? Um, yeah, the table. Uh, the reason I ask is because I heard you read a word in there that is very rare. <laughs> it's in only a few translations, and it's the word heavens. I think you read plural? Have, no, you're right. It's heaven. Oh, is it heaven? heaven. Oh, Okay. <laughs> That was funny that it sounded like you said heavens when you read it, because literally that word is plural in this text. It's heavens. And most of the translation committees, though, have decided that would be too confusing to put heavens, so they (laughs) elected instead to put heaven. But it's actually plural, and I thought I heard you say it. So, No, that was was funny. that (laughs) Maybe it's one of those examples that we hear what we want to hear sometimes, and I was (laughs) listening as you were reading it. All right, so it's swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the God of the earth. This is a phrase that uh, when you would swear an oath, you would swear an oath in the name of a deity, okay? Mm -hmm. You would swear an oath in the name of a deity, and it would usually be accompanied by some symbolic gesture. We know what the symbolic gesture was. It was place the hand under my thigh. That was a very solemn oath-taking gesture, and now he's following it up with a very solemn request for an oath and also appealing (coughs) to the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth. Regarding the God of the heaven and the God of the earth, Abraham is concerned about the woman that is going to end up eventually marrying his son. And it can't be a woman from the Canaanites. It says here right in this verse, will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. The Canaanites worshipped differently than Abraham worshipped. The Canaanites had their own deities, plural. Mm -hmm. Abraham had the God of heaven and the God of the earth, meaning one and the same, all right, as his deity, 
as his God. And because those Canaanites worshipped differently, that they had a different set of gods that they worshipped, you can't choose a woman from these people for my son to marry. Turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. We're going to chapter 7. And we're going to look at just verses 3 and 4 quickly here. Chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. God gives Moses the commands to write these words, to give these commands to the people. And these are the words, these are the commands. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. And verse 4 is the reason. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. That's Abraham's concern. Abraham's concern is you pick a woman from the Canaanites, they're going to lead my son astray. We can't have that. We have to choose somebody outside this group. Verse 4, somebody might read that one. Go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Excellent. Thank you, Sherry. We also have in this situation here, as we're reading through this verse, that it allows the people that are reading these words, because who wrote this book? Traditionally, Moses, Mm -hmm. right? Traditionally, Moses is the author of this book, perhaps compiling information from a couple different sources as he's doing so. Moses is writing this book, and who's, who's the audience? Who's the first people that get to hear what's put in this book? It's the children of Israel. It's the children of Israel that have come out of Egypt. It's the children of Israel that have exited Egypt and not yet entered the promised land. This is who the first audience is. So when they read through this book, what is, what is their command going to be? It's going to be go in and annihilate the Canaanites. <coughs> this helps them to see they're not related to the Canaanites at all. They can't say, oh, our father Isaac ended up marrying a Canaanite woman, and therefore it's kind of strange for us to go into the land and annihilate the Canaanites when they're related to us. So in a sense, it's as if the first audience can maybe take some note that the people that they're going in have been wicked all from the beginning and have continued until that day. In fact, their cup of wickedness has finally been full. Verse 5, 24 verse 5, somebody might reading that one. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Sounds like a a really practical question, right? I mean, because think about it. If you're the servant and the master of the household, the, the person who owns the whole estate, says to you, I want you, I'm trusting you with this very solemn oath, you're to go and find a wife for my son Isaac. And he goes to that land far, far away. And he says, I'm representing somebody you've never met. And I'm here to take you to a place you've never been <laughs> to marry a guy you've never seen. You know, and they'd be like, what? <laughs> He's already anticipating there could be some problems with that. And so he says, hey, you know, just in case she won't come, is it okay if I take your son? Because maybe the stipulation is going to be on the other end. Well, you bring that boy here and we'll take a look and see what we think. And if we like him, then we'll let our daughter marry this boy you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So that's already a concern of his. But what does Abraham say in verse 6? Abraham told him, Beware of taking my son back there. Beware of taking my son back there. This is actually really strongly worded in the Hebrew. I mean, it's worded in such a way where you have the beware there. My version says beware, uh, just as Mike's version uh, as he was reading. It's like, beware that you do not take my son back there as if it would be received by the servant as whoa (laughs) this is important to him all right what do you suppose is abraham's concern why not what could he be concerned about same thing maybe maybe they don't praise god there too or i don't know okay yeah we do know that the situation over there where he's going to end up going where where they ended up leaving you remember abraham left And Abraham and God, it was as if they started their thing over in the promised land, but those family members back there 
they were still worshiping in plural, mm-hmm. plural gods. So, yeah, there is an element of that. What else that goes along with that? I think he was protecting him, like go out and not come back and not return to him. I think you're right. I think he's already anticipating that if his son goes there, that perhaps the family would impose upon him to stay. And hospitality being what it was, and we'll see that as the story unfolds. Oh, no, 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 stay longer. Oh, stay another day. Oh, stay, 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 stay. And who knows, maybe his son would end up staying over there. Where is the promised land? It's not over there. The promised land is here. (laughs) And Abraham knows if his son goes over there, he's going to basically disqualify himself. How are you going to inherit the land? You're not even in it. To inherit the land, you've got to be in the land. So he knows that there's a place. Do not take my son back there. He might not come back, just as Sherry said. He might not come back. Think for a moment back to before you were a Christian. Before you were a Christian, you were in a place that now, looking back, you know that that was a place God called you out of, right? God called you out of a place to another place, all right? And you know, if you've got children, that they don't need to repeat the same mistakes you made, right? You already know you don't need to go there where I was. That's not a place for you. God wants you here. And you know how children are. They're like, well, I've got to find out for myself. Yeah. Though. Yeah. <laughs> but we know, we can experience, and I'm sure it was similar for Abraham. That was a place God called me out of. Yeah. I don't want my son going back to a place that I know God called me out of. Verse 7, somebody mind reading that one. For the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and my native land, solemnly promised to give this land to my offspring. He will send his angel ahead of you, and he will see to it that you find a young woman there to be my son's wife. Excellent. Thank you, Jennifer. Can you hear the conviction in his voice? Do you remember the day when we would look at Abraham, especially when he went down to Egypt? There was like this trust, but not so much. And the Abimelech thing, there was this trust in God, but not so much. And how it looks like over the years, he's actually been maturing. And here we're seeing another bit of evidence of maturity on his part, spiritual maturity. He's so convinced that God is able to make this happen that he's not even willing to concede, take my son back there. If Okay, if they need my son, take my son back there. No, that is non-negotiable. God will work it out somehow, is basically what he's saying. God will work it out somehow. And look at the, some of the things that he draws upon to make that point. That God the Father, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, from the land of my family, isn't that the same he's going to be asking of the woman? Right? God was able to take me from my family. God was able to take me from my land. God was able to bring me to a place I've never been. God can do the same for the person that's going to be the wife of my son. God can take her and convince her to move from her family. God can take her and convince her to come to a land she's never been to. God was able to do it with me, and I'm so convinced that God is who he says he is, that he can do it in her life as well. God can make it happen somehow, and I'm trusting that he will, but don't you take my son back there. (laughs) Don't you take him back there. Regarding this mention of his angel, he will send his angel before you. We've seen the mention of this angel twice before. Once was with Hagar in the wilderness, and once was with Isaac on Mount Moriah, when the angel of the Lord spoke and said, stop. (laughs) Don't lay a hand on the boy. Right when the knife was in the air. The angel of the Lord mentioned those two other places there. How about verse 8? Somebody might read verse 8. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this, my oath. Only do not take my son back there. 
Excellent. Thank you, Levette. So he is actually appeasing the servant a little bit and saying, okay, if you run into that situation, I'll let you off your oath. If it works out that God doesn't have provision, if God's not going to make it happen, then I'm not going to force you to drag her kicking and screaming. You'll be released. But I'm sure it sounds like, especially from the wording of verse 7, he's fully convinced that God's going to do what he needs to do to make this happen. And then verses 9 and 10, so the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels. That's a lot. That's a whole lot. All right? Camels were exceptionally rare in this time. And in fact, the only people that would have camels would be exceptionally wealthy people. And to have 10 of them loaded down with goods, that's a lot. All right? Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to, my version says Mesopotamia, but some of you probably have something different. Some of you might have Aram Neharim, all right? Uh, Mesopotamia is the Greek word, all right? The Greeks knew this area as Mesopotamia. Uh, In Hebrew, it's Aram Neharim, and it means Aram of the two rivers or between the two rivers. And then the rest of our versions would all come back together to say this, to the city of Nahor or to Nahor's city, all right? So he's sending the servant, this unnamed servant, back to the land from which God called him to go and find a bride for his son. Regarding those camels, like I mentioned, they're loaded down with gifts and they're loaded down with provisions. And we're going to find out in the story that actually plays a part. But here's something I want to make sure that everybody recognizes. Do you see in this situation, we have Abraham. He's the father figure. Abraham is the father figure and he's got wealth and resources beyond description. All right, You can't even fathom, ask or imagine uh, what he's got. And he could be spending the rest of his life in ease with his feet up and not concerning himself with anybody else. But what does he do? He concerns himself with making sure that his one and only son has a bride, a suitable bride. And so he takes an unnamed servant, and he gives his unnamed servant a task of the highest priority and the highest importance, and sends that servant off with the task of going to get a bride. Abraham is like a picture or a type of God the Father. God the Father with his unlimited resources. And he sends his unnamed servant with unlimited resources Who is the unnamed servant? If Abraham's God the Father, the unnamed servant is God the Holy Spirit. He sends his unnamed servant with unlimited resources to go and get a bride for his one and only son. Isaac, who is Isaac a type of then? Jesus, like God the Son. So Abraham, God the Father. The unnamed servant is God the Holy Spirit. Isaac is God the Son. Who is the bride? It's the church. It's us. We in this story are in that in-between time where the bride and the groom haven't been brought together yet. Just as we are living in that time right now where we, as the church, as the bride, have not yet been brought together with the groom yet. So where are we in the story? We're being attended to by the Holy Spirit who has unlimited resources to give us whatever we need to secure us and get us to the point where we are successfully married to the Son. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 32, and I'm not going to read all those verses, it has to do with wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives. But Paul says something really interesting in that last verse. In verse 32, he says this, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The church is the bride. Christ is the husband. And just as the unnamed servant, the Holy Spirit, goes and accomplishes that job, the unnamed servant brings the bride to the son, so we're going to see in our lives. The Holy Spirit's going to see to it that we as the church are going to be brought to the Son for that marriage supper of the Lamb that we look forward to. 
Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this day and age that we're in, where your servant is attending to our needs and, and providing for us whatever is needed to get us to be the bride that uh, you're looking forward to for your son. We look forward to the day of that marriage. In this in-between time, we pray, God, that you would lead us and guide us and help us to trust that you're guiding our steps. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, praise God.